Sorry, Canada, we're going to approve every project but the Keystone XL. Let's talk about that on where the money is. That is pretty bad for Canada. <laughs> they they're just getting, keep they're getting, keep getting the left out. Yeah, the, everything. You got LNG exports, now oil exports. You got, uh, well, they're approving pipelines up there, but we're not approving any of their pipelines. So I don't think it's ever going to happen, especially now that we're exporting our own light sweet condensate. Which takes us to our first headline, unless you wanted to talk about it. No, let's, let's, right let's, let's jump into the first headline. We yeah. can talk about it there. It comes from Wall Street Journal, and it's basically the U.S. ruling loosens four-decade ban on oil exports. Shipments of unrefined American oil could begin as early as August. Now, let's get it straight. It's not all oil. They're going to specify that it's light, sweet condensate. It's, yeah, it's condensate. Yeah. So the headline's a little misleading because yeah. it's not crude oil, technically. But it's it's not going through the full refining process, so it can leave our, our borders a lot sooner than the refined products that have been exported for some time now. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the refiners are probably a little bit irked by this, but I think they said that, what was it, Pioneer Natural Resources and Enterprise Product Partners yep. um, now have a deal together where they're going to start exporting some of this, and it could happen as early as August of this year, which caught me off guard because I didn't think anything like this was going to happen. Well, and it's only in very small quantities at first, but, you know, this is condensate, and condensate is not really oil. It's Mm -hmm. a rich gas that you can find in some of the oil plays, but you can also find it in the big natural gas fields. So it actually doesn't liquefy until you bring it up to the surface. So I don't really see this as that big of a deal. The condensate that they're exporting is very similar to gasoline that we already export so much of. So, you know, I, I still think crude oil, the exportation of crude oil is something that we are against. Um, we'll see what the United States actually decides on that. But I don't think condensate should really be in the same boat. And I don't think people should get up in arms over allowing small quantities of this because we have so much condensate. We have, I mean, we talk about having so much oil that trades under the international price. Condensate trades at a steep discount to even the WTI uh, oil prices in the United States. So we have a lot of it. Our refiners are getting to the point where we can't really maximize and use it as much. So I don't see an issue with actually sending some of this overseas. And it makes sense for, you know, Enterprise Product Partners who has a lot of contacts, a lot of shipping overseas already. So this fits right into their business model. It sure does, and it kind of intrigued me a little bit using this language because it's probably going to get some people up in arms that don't necessarily understand exactly what's going on. That title, to me, insinuates that we're exporting crude oil. Mm-hmm. But that's not, in fact, the case. So, uh, But you know, Harold Hamm, who's been very outspoken about this, saying that he thinks it's going to happen, thinks that this is just a new crack mm-hmm. in, the, in the facade there and thinks that one day it's just going to bust through and we will be exporting oil, um, which we do have a significant amount of, but yeah. I don't agree with it. Yeah, Pioneer Natural Resources also is the other company that you mentioned. Yeah. And Scott Scheffler, their CEO, has been with Harold Hamm, and they've been some of the biggest proponents of actually moving crude oil mm-hmm. overseas. But, you know, that, that ban has been in place for 40 years, and I don't think that's going to be open anytime soon. Especially when, you know, it'll be up there like the Keystone XL. There's going to be so many sides against it. No decision is going to be made in time. I wonder if the fact that both of those companies are such heavy oil producers has anything to do with with them wanting to export oil. (laughs) I'm not quite sure. Uh, That takes us to our next headline from NASDAQ. Um, Deepwater drilling rig spinoff. TransOcean Partners files for a $350 million IPO. So TransOcean, the offshore driller, operates the rigs offshore, mm-hmm. deep water, and nearshore. Um, most well-known, uh, unfortunately, for Macondo spill, but uh, the largest driller of its kind. 
throwing off three rigs that do have deals with Chevron and uh, a few other companies, mm -hmm. um, long-term yeah, long deals. deals. So that's a big point to take to, to notice here. I'm a little skeptical about deals like this because there are only three rigs. What happens if one of those three goes down? Investors are just left holding the, holding the buck here while Transocean investors um, are, are going to be getting the tax benefits of the, of the flow through because they're most most certainly going to be the general partner here. Yeah, I mean, basically uh, the Transocean partners, they're going to have about 51% of float that they're going to IPO. Mm -hmm. And Transocean, the parent company, will still hold you know 49% yeah. of that. So they would also be hurt if one of the ships go down. But the big thing here with master limited partnerships is People start are forming these because interest rates are low and people want yields. What the, the benefits there? Um, you get a forego corporate tax structure if you have the, the partnerships. It also helps the parent company if they're ever in a need to start financing or they need uh, to bring, to get more cash to either increase their distribution or their dividend. They can drop down assets to that MLP and collect cash from that, similar like an IPO. Right. It doesn't affect them as much. And they also have incentive distribution rights. So if the parent company outperforms and really runs the, the master limited partnership well, they get more money from that. So you know that, that's why you spend them off. It really gives you more options to finance. And Cedral Partners did this you know, what, a year, year and a half yeah, ago. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's just a way to, what I look at when I'm seeing Transocean doing this, I'm thinking, you know, are they trying to start increasing their distribution or their dividend again? Right. And they've had a lot of activist investors want going in there saying, we want this dividend to be higher. Uh, it made sense for Cedral to do it, and that's how they have been, you know, supporting their high uh, dividend as well. Yeah, Transocean came under fire from Carl Icahn. They didn't give him all that he wanted, but they did boost it to about 4%, which mm -hmm. is very competitive in the offshore space. And around that same time, they were talking about the IPO yeah. of the spinoff. So, yeah, it's interesting to finally see this come to fruition. Personally, I would stay as an investor of Transocean. Um, it seems a little too volatile. Three ships is way too volatile. Yeah. Even if the yield is fantastic, I would definitely stick with the parent company. Yeah, I'm well. not sure how many Cedral uh, partners has. Do you know? I'm not, uh, I think it's a little bit more than three, but I can't be for certain. Oh, there, how many rigs? Yeah. yeah, it's quite a bit more than yeah. three um, because then they had that North Atlantic um, spinoff That's that right. they had in there. So they had quite a bit of um, more rigs, but the yield was considerably lower than what you can get from the parent company. Yeah, we'll see. I'm interested to, to follow it because Transocean hasn't performed as well as some in the, in the stock market, although offshore uh, energy producers haven't really performed that well lately. So mm -hmm. interesting to follow, and uh, we certainly will hear because it is such a, a big-name company. Um, takes us to our third and final headline. That comes from Politico, a uh, company we, or a news outlet we don't usually talk about on here, but the Supreme Court nibbles at EPA's greenhouse gas powers. EPA has been making some moves the last couple of years uh, talking about reducing uh, emissions from power mm -hmm. plants by up to 86%. Supreme Court came out and said they might have overstepped their bounds a little bit, but they still uh, wield a lot of power, and they've really been uh, on the attacking end. And the reason why a lot of coal companies and uh, mm -hmm. coal-heavy utilities have really been pretty nervous and performing very poorly compared to other energy companies in the U.S. over the last several years. Yeah, the Supreme Court had some choice words for the EPA, but what did they actually decide? Nothing. The yeah. EPA still has the full power to regulate greenhouse gases as pollutants, mm -hmm. and basically what that means is they're going to have the authority to put into place a lot of the power cuts or the power plant emission cuts that you mentioned. You know, 30% reduction from the 2005 mm -hmm. level needs to be in place by 2030. So, you know, it gives them that authority, but Really, I, I don't see that as too big of a deal for a lot of companies. I think coal will end up on the wrong side over the long term. Yeah, the long and term, But definitely. there's a lot of people, I mean, a lot of um, actual power producers 
are moving away from that anyway. So they're actually addressing that. What the, even some of the newer coal plants will already meet some of these requirements. And you know, if you just look at the American support, the Washington Post had a survey of how many people were for these changes, and about 70% of Americans support it. So I, I don't see this as really giving the EPA this much authority. I don't see this as too bad for the oil and gas business. I don't either, but it's it's interesting to, or comical really to read this article and follow the debate because both sides think that they've won something tremendous. You see the, the environmental side, the Sierra Club, saying this is great, EPA gets to keep its regulations. But then the, the small government side of things comes out and says, oh, yeah, the, the Supreme Court's finally striking down a government agency for overreaching its bounds. Um, but really neither of them were really affected by the Supreme Court ruling. So uh, just a funny article, and I, I always like talking about the EPA because they've really got it out for coal. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they've, they've been on a witch hunt for it's a, a while. It's just never-ending. You know, they have the authority to do whatever, but it's going to come down to the states in the long term. Yeah. So I, whatever authority they're wielding now, it's going to be challenged by the time these actually go into place. So, Fair. you know, good. they feel good, but <laughs> we'll see what they ever can uh, do anything with that power. Uh, let's, let's go into our stock quiz. Yeah, yeah. The stock quiz that I have for you today. You know, we don't talk about gold often in this show. No, so, we don't. Uh, so, we are materials coverage as well. But yeah, so we got to get more into, into that. So I, the, what I have is who is the world's, by, what country is the world's largest consumer of gold? Okay. Now, the they're full, not eating it. They're just demanding they're it. Just, they're just taking it, <laughs> just hoarding taking it, <laughs> or using it. Um, so number one, the USA. Two, India. Three, China. Or Russia, the final four. I'm going to narrow it down. I'm going to get my 50-50 from Regis. I'm going to narrow it down to to B and C, uh, China and India. I remember, oh, I hope I remember correctly, that a headline came out late last year that China overtook India as the number one uh, demand center for gold. China is the number one producer of gold. Um, I, I do know that. So I'm pretty sure that they took the number one spot in both, although India is an interesting subject because they're kind of banning imports of gold a little bit now, mm-hmm. but people are sneaking it in illegally. So the, there's a lot more demand than you than you actually know about in India. But um, publicly known about demand, I'm going to say China is number one. Um, that is correct. That is correct. They actually last year they took overtook India, like you yeah. mentioned, by 300 metric tons. So quite a bit. And you know they're kind of different ways. China has always viewed gold as a store of value, mm-hmm. where India actually has commercial use for it. Right. Where they have that, that's where a lot of their uh, demand was coming from. But the big interesting thing here is, you know, China's really hoarding a lot of gold. Their central bank hasn't released numbers since 2009 on how much they're actually holding. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the flow of gold, a lot of it's coming yeah, into it's China. Dramatic. So if you can figure out why they're holding this what reasons are behind it. I think you can really start understanding what the next moves are for China. Are they trying to protect from inflation? Mm-hmm. Are, there, are they trying to get out more loans backed by gold? You really, I don't know, and I don't think anybody can really trust what China's trying to do, but that they're storing so much gold could be worrisome for other, for other central banks. Agreed. Yeah, there's limited supply, and right now, because of the low price, miners aren't mining as much of it. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, China can get its mitts on, on more than its fair share, which it clearly is trying to do. Uh, it's interesting to follow. I know there's a lot of gold bugs out there that hope they keep buying it up because mm-hmm. the price really has suffered over the past uh, couple of years, although it's made a, a decent couple of weeks, that and silver. But to me, personally, unless it does become a store of wealth again uh, or, or, or monetary use, I, I think silver is probably the best precious metals bet because of the industrial uses of it. Mm-hmm. On the hygiene side, it's the number one conductor. It's malleable. 
Uh, it, the, the list goes on and on for the industrial uses of, of silver. Mm -hmm. And if solar keeps taking off like we've seen, sure. um, that's a big big component of those of those solar panels. So if I have to choose one or the other, I like silver a lot. But uh, obviously countries are demanding their gold and even trying to repatriate it from the American coffers at the Federal Reserve and uh, uh, Fort Knox. Yeah, people love their gold, but yeah. I'm with you. Silver has more <laughs> usage. Um, let's, let's, go to, let's go to the tweets the for tweeters, today. The tweeters, yeah, that's it. I don't have a question because I was doing too much research on the USA-Germany game, but it, I'll get you back next week. It's all right. It's all right. We have plenty of questions. We'll have plenty of time to go there. But, yeah, let's go, let's go to the, the tweets. And our yep. first tweet uh, is, is from um, actually Maersk Drilling. Big news, we have just ordered four blowout preventers from GE Oil & Gas to be used in the Project 20K agreement with BP. Uh, you know, GE Oil & Gas. big in that tweet. Yeah, GE Oil & Gas, this is a big move for them. Yeah. They're really making strides into uh, the oil and gas field. We, you know, we went down to Houston recently, yeah. and you had a, a chance to talk to an executive at GE Oil & Gas. You know, it, I, I think you think that this could be a player going forward. I do. It's really becoming a much bigger part of their portfolio. People think of GE on the industrial side. People think of GE on the financial side. But if you look at their acquisitions over the past few years, energy has been where it's at for this company. And like you mentioned at that conference, I think they had to have the biggest booth there. Or if not, you know, uh, FMC Technologies had a pretty, mm -hmm. pretty significant uh, presence there. But GE yeah. was very well represented uh, from all aspects of offshore drilling. And that's just offshore. They've also got a significant presence onshore as well. So mm -hmm. I like GE. If, you're, if you want a diversified energy play, it has access to the cutting edge technology. B or GE is that is that company. I think uh, you look at blowout preventers. Typically, National Oil Well Varco is the first name you think of. Adding blowout preventers to ships, mm -hmm. which are uh, in high demand because of Macondo, people want at least two blowout preventers now. And to see GE get in there with a big name like Maersk and and BP asking for that to happen, mm -hmm. um, I think that's a big sea change in, in the offshore um, equipment supply business. No, I think it's huge for GE Oil & Gas because the Project 20K is basically a multi-pronged research and development project that BP is putting on to go out and find the most harsh offshore environments. And they're doing the research and find the best equipment that can actually handle a lot of the pressure that low. And when they started the project, they had a lot of earmarked contracts with FMC Technologies. So by actually going with GE Oil & Glass, that shows how great their blowout preventer is. And BP knows about blowout preventers because theirs didn't work <laughs> when Macondo, or that's the reason Macondo right. actually got yeah, out of hand. So they're looking for the best in these fields. So I think that speaks a lot to GE Oil & Gas. When we talk about the harsh environments, these, aren't, these companies aren't taking undue risks by going and chasing these. Um, that's all that's left in, in, for the most part. You mm -hmm. see the, the drilling expanding away from the equator into the more Arctic regions and, and harsher waters of the north and possibly even further south. So, yeah, GE getting in there with two of the biggest names in offshore drilling. It's good to see for them. Yeah, I definitely agree. Let's uh, go to our next, yeah, our next tweet. Uh, so our next tweet is actually from Bl Bloomberg, and it's short sellers are self-serving, nutty, but often right. Do you think that short sellers are often right? Yeah, they are self-serving. Yeah, Probably. I mean, I think all investors are to some degree. Nutty. Uh, I could see that. I can see cases for that. They take a lot of excess risk. I can see nutty because the risk is, is way higher than, than just going long because you can only lose the, your initial investment if mm -hmm. you go long. But Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just don't see it. I don't. I don't think that's quite right because I don't see them often winning. I mean, yeah, so you, can, you agree with the first two? I, I, I do. I do. I mean, you can look at what Bill Ackman's doing with Herbalife. Yeah. We'll see if that actually plays out. But even even if you look at um, Greenlight Capital, 
you know, they had a short position against Chipotle Mexican Grill that hasn't really played out too well. Green Mountain uh, 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 Coffee Roasters. That originally was okay, but once they put that deal together with, with Coke, Coke, they just kind of it soared. So you know, those are two of the biggest years. short sellers in, in the in the industry in New York, and they really haven't played out too well. So I'm not sure who he's looking at as yeah. short sellers or Bloomberg's looking at in these short sellers, unless you're looking at some cases from you know five, ten years ago. Yeah, that, that's interesting because you know when you're when you're long a stock, it takes a lot for it to go to zero, but. It doesn't take a lot for a stock to spike 20%, and then you have to cover some of your short position, which then drives the price up a little bit more because mm-hmm. you have to buy into it. So it's a very dicey situation. It's one that I stay away from. Um, I have a short S&P index fund, but it's a very small portion of my portfolio, just as a small little hedge. But I'm not going to go out there and isolate some specific stocks to short mm-hmm. because of the exact thing. Like you mentioned, when, when Green Mountain Coffee popped off, I mean, that was... I don't remember how much it was, but I know it was north of 20 30% uh, just after hours. So there's nothing you can do at that point mm-hmm. until you come into work the next morning to find out half your portfolio just evaporated. So um, interesting. And there's definitely been some uh, short selling in solar energy. Yeah. And I know yeah. that's uh, something that you've looked a little bit closely at. Yeah, I mean, I've looked close to it because I own personally own uh, SunPower. Yeah. And 26% of outstanding float is sold short. And I mean, you're a Solar City yeah. shareholder, and about 30% of outstanding float is there. And you know, I, I, this has been one of the better performers in my portfolio this last Agreed. year. Uh, SunPower has been up about 30 35%. And I just don't see why there's so many sh- people out there shorting these stocks because the industry is growing like crazy. You know, there's EPA, depending on what they do, um, that could also be a boost for them. The, just the cost competitiveness is really increased in a lot of states. So you're just seeing a lot of growth. I mean, tremendous growth in the solar industry. And I would just don't want to be holding on the other end and thinking that this is going down in value because both of those companies have had outstanding last couple of years. Over the last few years, they're up hundreds of percents. So I'm just curious why so many people are still really short solar. It makes for a wild ride for people that are along those companies too because I'm a solar city holder and it was up about 30% at one point for me. Then it was down 12% at one point for me. Now it's back up to where it originally started Mm -hmm. uh, with up 30%. But um, yeah, short sellers definitely, if you want to short sell something, maybe pick out one of its peers or a couple of its peers to go long, mm-hmm. short that company so that you can at least ride out the industry fluctuations and then just hope to gain that outperformance from mm-hmm. the two companies. Like you could go long. In my case, solar, I would go long some power and solar city and short for solar to kind of take some mm-hmm. of that uh, outperformance there and, ju- and only uh, get exposure to that. But even that's risky because um, if all three tank, then you're kind of screwed because First solar isn't going to outweigh the other two. I'm not a short seller. I probably yeah. won't ever be. And, and all three of those that you mentioned are kind of in different segments. Right. So you could look at some of the producers, some of the Chinese producers. There'll be losers in that space. You know, if you really want to short a company, probably look there. Uh, these three companies, no. You I have some play I money, maybe. I don't know, but I, it's not for me. I would rather go long. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, that's uh, that's all for our tweets that we have today. Um, you know, we didn't have any questions, so if any of the readers or viewers are listening, mm-hmm. TMF Energy, that is our tweet. Send us that. Uh, also, energy at fool.com. Yeah. Uh, any questions that they have? 24-7 access for you and anyone that you know who follows energy materials. Send in your gold questions. We're hungry to, to, to answer them. Oh, yeah. Gold questions are that's always right. good. Well, that's all for now. Go USA.